Gamers Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, my dear brothers, sisters, friends, and foes, and welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Didi Hussein. Today's guest, what do I say about today's guest? What do I say about today's guest? Today's guest is perhaps the most requested guest that we've had on the Blood Brothers Podcast. On every other post, on every other YouTube wow. video or social media, you'll see this guest's name tagged. And the fact that he kept man waiting for 13 wow. months also is, is mad as well, yeah? Uh, and that's none other than rapper, activist and political commentator Kareem Dennis, who's better known as his stage name Loki. Salaamu Alaikum. Alaikum Salaam. Uh, firstly, bro, I wanted to publicly apologise for that. Um, I, appreciate, I appreciate your patience. Now, I appreciate your patience, man, because this uh, 13 months is a long time. But also, I want to I wanna big up everyone that has requested an interview like this. As you will know, uh, probably as well as, if not better than me, YouTube now is not the YouTube of 2010 to 2016. Uh, you have certain discourses being algorithmically disadvantaged in major ways. I think it's actually quite a bit harder now for an independent artist to get people on YouTube following uh, their music. 70% of what we watch on YouTube is stuff that's recommended to us rather than stuff that we have purposely sought out. So if there is people seeking out my stuff on YouTube as we speak, I massively appreciate it. And it's important uh, to what I do that that connection is still there. So, yeah. Nana, bro, just, Nana, Nana, love for that, but there's no need to apologise. All good things come to those who wait, and I think the 30 month anticipation for having Loki onto the podcast was was a big thing. So, love to you for giving us that time, bro. Thank you, my bro. Thank you, I appreciate right. it, bro. Right, listen. Before we're going to be talking about some serious issues today, and I want to set the tone for today's podcast by having a session of quick fire questions. Right now. There's going to be two rounds of quickfire questions. And basically what I'm going to do, Kareem, is I'm going to mention round one. I'm going to mention to you some figures, historical and contemporary figures from Islamic slash Middle Eastern history. And I want you to tell me the first thought that comes into your mind. Okay. Um, yeah? but, but by the way, um, don't necessarily expect me to know everybody you mentioned, bro. That's, a, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. I mean, if you don't know someone, that's fine. Yeah. Um, so, so let's do this. You ready? The first thought that yeah. com- the first thought that comes to your mind. Let's go. Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Social justice. Fatima al Fihri. Quite an important um, achievement, I think, to be emphasised to young people in schools today especially in britain where a lot of people um are being encouraged and not just in the public sector but also in the private sector now to spy on muslim children for them to have a good understanding that one of the uh oldest still existing schools was founded by fatima al-fahari um this is an important thing uh, especially for young moroccans as well i live in labrick grove a lot of moroccans here I think that having a sense of connection to that uh, educational achievement and that societal progress is something that can be 
inspiring for a lot of people. So I think they should, yeah, definitely check out uh, what she was able to do. And, and, and it's still standing today, so go and check it out too in Maghrib. Salahuddin al Ayubi. Um, inspiring and important figure. Um, one that always stood out to me is more an anecdotal story, and it's actually uh, there's differences on whether it did or didn't happen. It was when he uh, met personally with who they called Richard the Lionheart. And uh, Richard the Lionheart took his sword and started smashing it against the tree to knock down the tree to prove how powerful his sword was and how powerful he was as an individual. Now what Salahuddin al-Ayyubi did was he threw up a piece of silk and it landed on his sword and the uh, silk uh, split. Uh, and I think to me, it, it fed into a little bit of the martial arts um, study that I've done in my life and, and Bruce Lee's idea of be like water and the idea that the shortest distance it, between two points is a straight line and you don't always need to apply pressure in, a, um, in an obvious way and there are ways in which you can passively defeat uh, your opponent. So I think uh, definitely another important figure to look at and study for sure. And someone I wish I'd studied more um, of, you know, it's only bits and pieces that I've been able to to get in with uh, Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, important guy. Mansa Musa. Mansa Musa. <laughs> um, I mean, clearly um, an ostentatious uh, elitist figure who would have been served by a lot of uh, people who would have been struggling um, and would have had to serve him in what were probably bondage-like conditions, though I don't know for sure about the details of all of that. But yeah, at one point, uh, the richest man in the world, obviously, at a time where um, uh, Mali had uh, a monopoly on salt, which was a lot more expensive then than it is now. So, um, yeah, interesting figure for people to learn about. Also, you know, a lot of the figures that we look at in the past, we're juxtaposing them to a present situation where uh, people are viewed as downtrodden and their history is viewed as beginning with colonialism. Now, the, the importance of bringing up these figures is actually to say there was a history prior to colonialism and Absolutely. even the practice of orientalism you know wasn't wasn't if you look at somebody like Adelard of Bath or uh, Robert of Chester or even mm. Roger the uh, second king of Sicily these were people that in order to develop their societies they had to learn Arabic and study geography astronomy philosophy in Arabic mm. in order yep. for them to develop um, European society at that time. You know, we know that uh, uh, Muslims were obviously practicing ablution, but more than that, someone like Ibn Sina was able to write a book, a series of books that was used as a curriculum for medicine at a time when Oxford scholars were saying bathing was just a heathen practice and you shouldn't do it. And I'm not saying that to make anyone feel bad. I'm not saying that to... Um, 
yeah, I'm not saying that to make anyone feel bad or that anyone should feel ashamed of anything. I'm saying that the development of human history has worked in this way. If you were Absolutely. to even look at who, you know, they, they call the father of astronomy Copernicus um, yeah. because he had, well, one of, one of his important findings was that rather than um, the sun rotating around the earth, the earth rotates around the sun. Um, that conclusion had been uh, reached by Ibn Ashatar 150 years prior to um, Copernicus uh, seeing that, but obviously Ibn Ashatar is not credited in the way that someone like Copernicus is um, here. So it's, it's about seeing the development of humanity in a more open way and in a way that is less um, affected by current political antagonisms and um, power dynamics, I would say. Cool. Abdul Khadr Al Jazeri. Al Jazeri. Um, mm. a, a, a very, um, a very complicated figure. I think that, in a way, he is celebrated uh, by Europeans, Western Europeans, particularly for the things that some um, Algerians may condemn him for but I mm. think as a symbolic figure I mean he reminds me a little bit of Yasser Arafat as a symbolic figure he has a uh, a political currency the reason why I mentioned him in in the song was because it always struck me the um the the way that he had been buried in Syria and then after the liberation of Algeria you know you have to remember that the French had occupied it since the 1830s until the early 1960s and Mm. they called it Thorat Million Shahid so while the figures of how many Algerians died across the period is debated back and forth you know the French were using all manner of and it's one of the reasons actually that I mentioned in the song Idarat al-Tawahush now yes even even <laughs> even even <laughs> saying that can can get us on watch lists um, because of the importance that some of the ideas in that book seem to have played on yep. um, you know people that went off and hurt a lot of people in Iraq and in Syria mm. um, and then became the focus point of the military industrial complex for a few years and were a cash cow for the military industrial complex for a few years. No. But my, my point being is one of the core understandings in, in my limited reading of it was the idea of um, displaying and exhibiting uh, punishment in a way that will affect the population that you are attempting to control or to rule over um, in order to get their consent at, that, at, that, at, at your rule, consent to your rule. Now, the French were literally sending postcards home from Algeria of French soldiers holding the heads of Algerians. They used to drive Algerians in, in, in buses to the mountains to watch executions of people like them. They used to leave people on the side of the road with a, with a, a, a kind of um, a signpost next to them sticking out saying, this is what happens when you mess with the French. Um, that's not to mention the other policies they had of deveiling um, Algerian women publicly. Yep. 
there, there were all types of ways in which you can say that especially that kind of generation of North Africans, but particularly Algerians, you know, we know the civil war in 91 followed the democratic election of a group that weren't to the liking of the Algerian military or to much of the international community. And so what that, all of those things give birth to is a level of brutality that then you will start to see reflected in these kind of movements, especially when people don't see their political aspirations reflected within the framework of the political system. So they see no way in which that, and even when they try to enter the political system, they are, they are suppressed outside of it. They are imprisoned. They are overthrown by the military. And so this type of brutality that we saw, as horrifying as it was, and, you know, we're from London, you know, they're, they're, many people from London also got involved. And there was always a way in which the British media would, would, would look at the situation and say, where has this come from? And they try and, and explain it. And I think the things they brought up yeah. might be useful and yeah. might contribute to the discussion about it. Mm. But I think what also has to contribute to the discussion about it is that that period of history before independence and the independence of the nation states that a lot of people were coming from. I think that's an important part to add to the conversation, hence um, the inclusion of that kind of, that kind of stuff in the song. As well. Cool, cool. Um, Sultan Abdul Hamid. No, this is not really quick fire, is it? <laughs> you're, you're not making a quick fire, but hey, I'm enjoying know, the responses. I'm enjoying the responses. It's, it's all good, bro. I mean, I, it's mainly thinking out loud. Um, Sultan Abdul Hamid, um, I assume you mean the, the last one. Um, yeah, yeah, the, the he, second, Khalif Abdul Hamid the second, yes. Yeah, he, he was an interesting figure. You know, again, I don't, I don't want to go into too much depth into all of these guys because I just have not given the reading necessary to have I did really say initial thoughts I did say initial thoughts uh, position yeah yeah okay so, so, I'll, so I'll give you initial thoughts um, naive wow naive really yeah Omar Mukhtar yeah Mukhtar ah uh, um Inspirational. Inspirational. Said Kutub. Um, I've read a bit of Ma'alif Tariq, but I, I really have not had enough of a, a serious study of him to give you um, a serious opinion. But clearly influential. Wow, so that was supposed to be our round one of quickfire. So I'm not even going to call it quickfire <laughs> anymore, yeah? Round two, but I swear down, you have to promise yeah. me to keep it as brief as possible, yeah? Okay, bro. Tell me okay, bro. Just tell me instinctively what comes to your heart and mind, yeah? So we've done, we've done figures. Let's talk political concepts. Instinctively what comes to your mind? Democracy. Oh, inverted, inverted, inverted totalitarianism. Human rights. Important. Socialism. 
care. Free speech. Relative. What's widely known or referred to as Islamism? Eurocentric. Nation state. Recent. Capitalism. Malignant or dynamic, depending on how you look at it. Civil disobedience. Important. Neoliberalism. The invisible elephant in the room. Wicked. That was a very interesting, not so quick fire round, mashallah. <laughs> right, listen, let's go into now. Obviously, a lot's been happening, bro. Um, and I know yeah. uh, the, the entire our, our news fees, our shows, social media fees, our timeline for the last two weeks at the time of the filming of this particular podcast, it's been 13 days since the murder of African American George Floyd. Uh, by white Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Subsequently, we've had millions take to the streets in the US and beyond. Even in London, we had tens of thousands. Um, and I know many of our black brothers and sisters have, alhamdulillah, they've had you know the opportunity to now speak and they are speaking. But there's, following on from the, some tweets that you made recently, right? And there's two things that I want to address here. In light of what's going on in the US And I want to get your thoughts on it People are throwing around the concept of institutional racism But I feel that many don't actually understand What that actually means in manifest Right? You also tweeted something about the prison complex And how in America The prison complex benefits From institutional racism against African Americans Shed a bit of light on what Institutional Islamophobia is And how it manifests From a, a, a systemic point of view Because uh, what happens Kareem Is that people hear certain words And in a well-meaning way They'll just use these terms without actually knowing What it means right? Because, ev because everyone's saying it Because Loki is saying it Because Akala is saying it Because this person saying it Because that's saying it Because it sounds trendy It sounds good But I don't think a lot of people On a very simplistic term Understand what it actually means so give me your thoughts first and foremost on what institutional racism is and how it has affected black Americans from what you have been tweeting about in terms of the prison complex. Well, I think, bro, we have to, to have this conversation, go back to the, the dawn of what we understand to be race. And I think there's a great book called The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter, which is not the hyperbolic book that the title might give someone the impression it is. What she points to is the development of social distinction and race as a form of social distinction. While human difference had been something that had been noted throughout history, you had Ibn Khaldun talk about Asabiya, Asabiya you yes. had um, in India a caste system, which, you know, incidentally... The, the, I, I look at the word karma in jihad as walking in opposite directions but towards a different language. So you look at something like karma within and my understanding of it, 
within the context of Hinduism is literally the difference between somebody being born Dalit and Brahman. And that meaning that they are being punished for a previous life and it will, uh, it will dictate what kind of life they will have, right? And that is karma. But when a person in London uses the word karma, they're talking about five minutes ago, you said something nasty to someone and then something it's bad happens to you. To you. Yep. So it's, it's, it's a, a similar but a different kind of meaning from language to language. And I think a, a similar but different path has been walked for other concepts, especially from Arabic into English in the present time. You know, you could definitely argue that jihad in English is not the same as jihad in Arabic. They're, they're Absolutely. totally different con- concepts and, and used yeah. in different ways. But, but anyway, um, my point was is that you have these previous forms of, um, of determinism. So this is the thing with the caste system in India. This is the thing with somebody like Aristotle and Plato arguing that people were born predetermined, uh, you know, uh, predisposed to slavery and others were born predisposed to other things. Um, you then have also the expulsion of the Moriscos, which was an important part following the Spanish Inquisition, which was when Ferdinand and uh, Isabella uh, took... Spain back from uh, the, the Khilafah, mm-hmm. you had a situation where people were uh, told that if they were Jewish or if they were Muslim, they had to convert to Christianity yeah. or um, they had to leave. And so during that period, people converted. However, uh, generations of their families going forward were not trusted on an institutional level. And so what that led to was the expulsion of the Moriscos, which was where the the grandchildren or great-grandchildren in some cases of people that had converted out of Christianity or out of Islam, um, sorry, out of Judaism or out of Islam into Christianity were were expelled, were still not trusted and were expelled en masse. You know, some... uh, some estimations put it at about quarter of a million people were driven from Spain to Morocco. Now, what's important about this is you have Asabiya, you have caste system, you have uh, this way in which what they took was um, religion and put it into a person's blood. So they biologized religion with the expulsion of the Moriscos. And so what that meant is these were precursors to what we understand today to be race a modern concept and what Nell Irvin Painter points out in this book and this is the part that that book focuses on is the the 17 and 1800s when you had thinkers like Blumenbach uh, measuring people's skulls and attempting to create uh, a table of of categories of human being and he and he had about five different categories of human being now what she then says is it's only post second world war And it's only around the 60s that the categories of human beings for what we understand to be white people uh, came into one. So you had the Romans invading uh, London in 46 AD and referring to the Celts people here as biologically inferior to themselves. Yet aesthetically, as we would understand what white people are today, 
there wouldn't yeah, be a clear difference between a Roman and a Celt, potentially. Yeah. We, would, we would collapse them into the same reductive definition of whiteness. And so what she looks at is she looks at the development of the idea of, 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 of white people as a recent um, social construct which is meant to, di- to, to distinguish people from one another. Now, the way in which um, racism comes about is when you give different rights institutionally legally to people who are defined by those aesthetics so a white person in the law has different rights compared to a black person in the law now the reason why islamophobia can and must be understood as a form of racism is because during the war on terror period we have seen one of the core columns of what we understand to be Britishness, which is the Magna Carta and habeas corpus that you are afforded within the legal system, judged by a jury of your peers, see the evidence that's held against you. People that are Muslim, okay, have had that taken away. Of course, upon upon, secret courts. We've not had evidence being presented. We've had people's uh, citizenship being taken in absentia. We've had all of that. Yeah, you know it, you know, you know it. And, and, and the important thing is that if you are racialized as a Pakistani male, you are 154 times more likely to be stopped under uh, Schedule, Schedule 7. seven. Yep. Um, in that process, that person is not being asked their religious views until they're detained. So therefore, an aesthetic judgment is being made of that person and they are being detained. So racism being about aesthetics, being about physical, it's like a marrying of culture and biology. And um, while Islamophobia is not biological determinism, and that's true, mm. racism of the 17 and 1800s was that biologically... Some people are destined to be one way and other people are destined to be another way. That's not what's happening. That's not what's happening. You could say, you could say it's scriptural determinism because without any understanding of Asbab um, al-Nazul or Nasikh al-Mansukh or any of these concepts, they take a very, very narrow and the most irrationalizing as possible reading of religious scripture and then... They're even applying it to children as young as three. The idea that prevent applies to children in nurseries, that children as young as three can be questioned by the police without the presence of their family can only happen, can only happen because there's a level of determinism that you're looking at that child with, that that child is on a conveyor belt towards committing political violence. When we both know, we all know, you know, Chris Hunter, expert in terrorism for the British government, says your chances of being anywhere near an act of political violence are one in 16 million in this country. You know, between something like... um, I'll, I'll, I'll get the figure for you, but the percentage... Well, the, the, the percentage of uh, terrorist attacks that were committed by Muslims in Europe between the year um, 2008 and 2014. I, th- I think it was 0.7, but I mean, it, no, the no, point no. is, the point is, it's, it's, it's infinitesimal, the chances, mm. right? You have a better chance. You know, Yuval Noah Harari said it like this. He said, 
McDonald's and Coca-Cola are a greater threat to your life in the Western world than Al-Qaeda and Daesh. Now, I don't, I don't like those, personally, I don't like those organisations, yeah? And I'm, and I'm not saying anyone else does. I'm saying I don't like those organisations. But I don't like, like Coca-Cola and I don't like McDonald's either. But let me tell you something. Merely for having this conversation mm. in this way, yeah. this video, you don't know what can happen to this video on YouTube. You don't know who True. could say this, this, this is a post that is doing... You know, look at YouTube standards in terms Absolutely, of... Absolutely, bro. In terms of, sh- in terms of um, censorship and stuff like yeah. that. Yuval Noah Hariri is a best-selling Israeli author. Mm. He wrote Sapiens. Yeah. You know, this is somebody who is as embraced by the establishment as is possible. And the implication of his words is that there must be, there must be Islamophobia within the society if we're treating these two organisations as anywhere near akin to the damage done by obesity and the damage done by um, uh, food, which is bad for your health, in terms of actual data, in terms of people that die linked to those things. So it's about threat inflation. That's the truth. It's about threat inflation. And now how does that connect to what's happening in the States? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Spot, on, no, spot on, spot on. Carry on, carry on. That's exactly what I was getting at. Go on. How does that relate to what's happening yeah, in the US? So the, Okay, so now, what we understand to be the cultural ambience of the moment is the commonsensical way in which it's normal for somebody that works in Superdrug or Tesco or McDonald's to be on the lookout for extremism, yeah? yeah. Despite the fact that Mark Sageman, in Misunderstanding Terrorism, says that in the war on terror period, according to the prosecutions, you're talking about less than one in every million Muslims having anything to do with political violence. Despite the fact that around 80% of the 160 or 70 people in prison now on terrorism charges are people in prison for non-violent crimes, right? Despite the fact that all of that is the norm, yeah? That that level of hyper-anxiety about a section of the population is the norm. What that means is that you have a situation of racists without racism. So, no, sorry, profound racism without racists. You Mm. have the situation where people can say, well, but that's just the way things are. The system is structured in such a way that lends itself to the reproduction of of that situation. Now, what you have in the States is African Americans making up 13% of the population but making up 40% of the prison population. Michelle Alexander has a great book called The New Jim Crow, and Glenn Greenwald has a good book called The uh, Liberty and Justice for Some, which looks at that discrepancy, that disparity. Uh, White, to use the reductive term, uh, Americans are 65% of the population, yet they make uh, about 39% of the prison population. You look at Latinos, they are 16% of the population in the United States and they make up about 19% of the prison population. So no other group within the United States is as disproportionately represented in prison as African Americans. That's the fact. Now, how that happens is something that there may be uh, different opinions on. There are those that say, look, if you look at the school to prison pipeline and the rates of expulsion 
that happen for um, African Americans, it leads to a situation where they only are about 15% of the school population, but 31% of students that are ever arrested are, um, are, are African Americans. 70% of those people that enter prison in the US are people that did not get the chance to finish um, high school. You know, in, in, the, in the era that we live in after the civil rights movement, uh, a black man has a 60% chance that they will be incarcerated in their lifetime. Now, when you look at the forms of crime uh, that are um, applied and, and, and that lead to that situation, a lot of it is for non-violent crimes around drugs. And when people have campaigned for reforms in the drug laws in the United States, you have had private prison companies. And let's not forget that everything in the prison system within the United States, and it's not, you know, because in fact, the majority of prisons in the United States are still owned by the state, but it's the companies that supply the bedding it's the companies that supply the food it's the companies yeah. that that make massive that extract massive profit from this um this economic uh, equation so those companies um private uh prison companies lobby government against reforming drug laws because they know that it's those drug laws that are the big cash cow for them and that keep feeding that uh, that economy and you know we don't live in a, a completely different situation in the United in, in the United Kingdom we do have a situation where 88 percent of, um, of of young men that are placed in in prison were excluded from school at some point um, and also 45 percent of those that um, enter custody in uh, in Britain are black and uh, 10% of them are Asian. So while it's not the same, while the history of police brutality, the history of New Jim Crow apartheid is not the same, you know, there, there, there were murders in the street like Kelso Colcrane, which led to the Notting Hill Carnival. There was a, a, a system of... Uh, no blacks, no, no Irish, no dogs um, applied in areas after the Windrush period, but is simply not the same as a, a long, uh, several hundred years relationship with um, uh, an apartheid state, which is what the United States was at one point. And so what you have is a situation where um, People are making something like 86 cents a day in U.S. prisons, but they uh, generate about $60,000 a year for private interest. You have situations where people that may have lost a loved one that are in prisons in the U.S. and will need to go to the funeral will have to pay for the uh, officers that go with them. And so you even have situations where people exit prison in the United States and are in debt. And that debt has interest on it already. So within that situation, the, the dealing uh, by uh, law enforcement in the US with African-American males is an extension 
of the penal system, which is about converting them into economic units that can serve uh, private interest. Even if you look at the amount of people that are in the US prison system awaiting trial, it's something like six out of 10 people in US jails are people that have not been put on trial um, yet. And, and even 95% of all jail growth in the US, population growth between 2000 and 2014, was people that were eventually not found guilty. Anyway, no, no, I mean people that had not yet gone to trial, mm. actually. So 95% of all jail growth for those 14 years was people that had not gone on trial yet. So I think that what's happening now is important, but I also feel, I also feel that more in, in the British context than the United States, because my ability to have any effect on US government policy is very limited, but my ability to say things which will affect people in this country is, is greater. Mm. Gatherings of tens of thousands of people on the street here are not necessarily a great idea. You know, if you are a, because if you are a black man, you are 4.2 times more likely to die from the coronavirus. If you're Bengali or Pakistani, you're 1.8 times more Absolutely. likely to we're die I'm, from I'm, the coronavirus. Karim, we're going we're gonna to get to because that's our next topic of discussion, COVID-19 okay. and BME communities. But before we move on to that, yeah. before we move on to that, Akhi, yeah, look, at the end of the day, you've just highlighted uh, what I would say is the tip of the iceberg in terms of major disparities in terms of how... African-Americans uh, are legally, systemically uh, disadvantaged and discriminated towards, right? But the age-old discussion is this, bro. And I guess this goes back to the times of MLK, the, the, back, the times of Ghana and, and Malcolm X. Is that, what, what, what's to be done then, bro? Is it, is it a case of engaging with the system to look at reform, leg legislative reform? Is it a case of uprooting the entire system at its roots? What is it? Because I think I think one thing. Mm, because, yeah, sorry, bro. No, no, because at the end of the day, you know, it, whether it's the Arab Spring, whether it's uh, you know movements for social change uh, in the global south or in the Muslim majority world or even the US, there's always that age-old discussion about what do people want besides going to the streets. What is it that people want? Do you want to uproot the system? Do you want to replace the system? Do you want some just some legislative reforms? If so, what's the best way to go about that, right? Because once, because once the hype's done, Kareem, once the hype's done, once the hashtag's done, right? There is a very likely fear that things will just go back to normal. That there was a little period where people were allowed to vent. That venting period is done, and yeah, everything will go back to normal. There is that. Well, the yes, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. So, so, what's your thoughts on that then? Well, there's two points here. When we look at history, we see that mass mobilizations of people lead to political systems making concessions that they wouldn't otherwise make in order to try and accommodate that kind of dissent. And so you had uh, reactions to the unrest um, that led to... Um, a black middle class that you didn't really have in that period uh, prior to that kind of unrest. It, yeah. it led to situations where 
you could have somebody in the White House like Obama. But the actual substance of the policies didn't radically change in the way they needed to. So I completely agree that clarity is needed, especially when you have a lot of people on the streets. When you are at the time of a pandemic, make no mistake about it, the debt that has been incurred by this period of economic shutdown yeah, is not only going to lead to serious austerity, the debts are not going to be treated the way the World War II debt was treated or the debt from the Emancipation Act in 1833 when they gave £20 million um, pounds to uh, people that owned human beings and traded in them. Mm. Um, the debt is going to be treated more like 2008. And George Osborne has already said we need to, we need to get austere to, to deal with this. Now, the thing about it is one sector, which is not going to be subject to that, author- um, that the same level of austerity as all the other sectors will be police. Will be police because of the social unrest, because of the perceived need to track people, because of the changes in law that we've seen around um, stuff like um, testing and tracing, um, increased surveillance, increased use of um, big tech companies to see into every orifice of your existence. All of that is going to increase, and I think that is definitely something people need to be. Um, careful about you know there's a phrase that I have always found um, quite interesting and quite nice it is the 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 juxtaposition of what they call optimistic cruelty and cruel optimism and so on one side you have the optimistic cruelty of the ruling class Mm. because they say well you know we take these policies but Maybe it won't be that bad. And this is the kind of mantra they repeat to themselves because they don't see it. They're not directly in contact with it. They're not living but then it. The cruel, yeah, but then the, 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 the cruel optimism is the other side of it. It's the person who's just trying to get ahead in life in a situation where uh, many different forces and a, a machine with lots of moving parts is seeking to convert that person into an economic unit, a process which will no doubt traumatize them massively so i think you're right that is on the shoulders of the people that are attempting to organize this mass of human beings right now is to have clarity in aims and to be clear about it i don't believe that um people need to be particularly pure politically there are different roles that can be played by different people in different positions i think that the prison system hasn't always been the way it is. I think that it can change. Though I would be very careful, you've seen the US Army put out a a video just uh, yesterday or the day before yesterday of one of their prominent officers explaining what it's like for him on an individual level as a black man in the United States. Now this is a very, very, uh, a very, very 
sophisticated form of psychological warfare because what it does is it gets people to feel that vertical solidarity with the army implicitly because he didn't do it on a private platform he did it dressed in military fatigues and released through the US military's the division that he belongs to that division's Twitter um, Twitter we've, we've uh, had the account. same we've had the, we've had the same with the Muslim Association or armed forces in the UK we've had the same yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, this is, so this is how it happens. You have, um, you know, Sajid Javid talking about what it was like for him to grow up. Hmm. Encouraging people to implicitly um, come along with this Ayn Rand individualism. Because when you take what are structural and social problems and convert them to merely individual things to that relate to how you feel rather than what your relationship with institutions is, and what your material reality is, then it's quite easy for you to overlook the relationship with institutions, to overlook the material um, reality and focus on how it feels. And I think that that is a dangerous thing at this Mm. moment, is for Mm. people to focus on emotionalising what is a very real um, issue which does return in many ways to economics. You know, you look at the the US incarceration system, some estimates had it that it was one in every 100 adults in the United States was in prison um, around 2008, 2009. If you were to look at the, the Soviet Union uh, gulag system, you had um, something like 0.8 per uh, 100 uh, USSR residents at its height incarcerated in some way. Martin. So... Think about what we're comparing this to and think about, you know, your situation where in comparison to its neighbours, the, the prison rate in the United States is, is higher than actually every other um, state in the world. Yeah. There's 10.6 million admissions to prison in the United States every single year. There's more people in prison than there are people in the city of Dallas or the city of Philadelphia in the United States. That's a gargantuan amount of human beings is that really necessary is that really necessary for domestic tranquility i don't think it is i don't think it is at all so i mean look just just before we move on to covid19 and and things a bit more closer to home in the uk how do non-black people of color assist and contribute in aiding their brothers and sisters whether it be the african-americans whether it be african-caribbeans here in the uk uh, what would your advice be to Arabs, Turks, Asians, uh, people, you know, for, of people of colour who can assist in this struggle? Okay, so I think, number one, it's definitely worth learning about history. So, as an Iraqi, it was interesting to study Thawrat Zanuj, quote-unquote Zanuj, not a nice word, but it's a word that is used to refer to that particular event in history. I think it's worth studying that um, and also what we can see as ways in which there may be similarities with a certain period of time. But let's not forget. And, you know, I'm not a scholar. OK, I'm not a scholar. But my understanding is manumission is something that is rewarded Islamically. We, we know that we know that that manumission, emancipation of somebody in a situation of bondage was not the same economic transaction 
that it was in the transatlantic slave trade. Absolutely. What I think Absolutely. is not healthy, what I think is not healthy, and as you will know from an Uthmani, mm. there were a huge amount of people whose parents, who were, who were born into some form of bondage, who went on to be Khulafa yep. in the Ottoman, in the Ottoman context. Uh, there was also a different kind of uh, dynamic that developed with eunuchs and th- it's not the same. And I think that having such a, um, a, a, a US influence conception of the world can sometimes then be back projected onto history. And I don't think that that is a good thing to do. And I think people should be careful about it. I think they should be interested and curious about the history, but they shouldn't necessarily use broad strokes to apply the same situation bro, bro, across bro, the board me, everywhere in the world. Let me just interject. Let me just interject. Basically, so basically, look, bro. Yeah, basically, just that yeah. point. Just that point. What you've basically made there, for our listeners and viewers, what you're essentially saying, if I'm correct, and correct me if I'm wrong, yeah, is basically that look. Yeah, yeah. With, with, within Islamic history and tradition, there is a concept, or has historically been a concept of slavery and bondage. Uh, the Uthmanin who had the concept of eunuchs and you know concubine uh, wives who gave birth to Khulafan sultans, are you basically saying that that should not be compared to? It would be an unfair comparison to the transatlantic slave trade. Well, it would make as much sense as comparing, you know, Athens at one point was almost two thirds made up of people in bondage. Roman society is understood to be the most um, uh, dominated society by people in bondage. Does that mean that all of those societies were the same as transatlantic slavery? Completely Course not. not. You know, Course not. Can we forget? Can we forget that uh, the reason for the French occupation of Algeria in eighteen thirties on the French side was to stop people being kidnapped by the Ottomans and put into bondage within the Ottoman empire at that time and they were europeans and uh, they were white people that were being taken you know as you then mentioned the the mamelukes the mamalik they then from military slaves went on to forming their own uh, political center of power so it would be a shame if we were quick to apply the present to the past across the board and the whole of world history it, it, it's not a wise thing to do. In saying that, in saying that, as I said at the beginning, I do believe that it is important to, to, to look at the ways in which difference, human difference, have had a role in people understanding each other. Let's also not forget that Martin Luther King and the Ku Klux Klan both, both saw the Bible as justification for their political positions so the the ability for people to interpret religious texts in completely contradictory ways is something that everyone knows only too well and does exist now in in terms of really getting to it <laughs> to what you were asking me i think that we need to also be clear that Personal self-flagellation is absolutely politically useless. It offers nothing of substance to any situation. Understand where your resources are. Understand where your power lies. 
and understand things that you can do to materially change the situation. It might make you feel good. It might make you feel good to make a broad stroke condemnation of this idea of a culture. But what's that really going to mean to anybody? You know, I, I think that you, you'd be better off uh, donating money to the funds which are looking after people who are definitely, you know, the, 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 the carceral state in the United States is working very hard right now to convert a lot of people into economic units, to increase surveillance, work out the ways in which those things are happening and the ways in which those passages of power can be disrupted um, in some way from whatever position you are in. Um, also, I think an important concept that people need to look into is reification. Because the point that I was trying to make right at the beginning of this question, and I understand the answer has been very long-winded. I understand that. <laughs> but, but, but the point I was trying to make is that these concepts are subject to change. These concepts are relational and they are variable and subject to change. And historically, they have not always applied and may not and, and will not always apply and will change. Um, and so therefore, we shouldn't um, consecrate these ideas of who people are and, and peg people to these ideas of identity as having uh, domination of who they are. People are defined by what they do. People are defined by what they do, not identities which are imposed on them by the society. The answer, the answer to these social distinctions is not to reify them ourselves. The answer to them is to problematize them and look at them critically and try and understand people, not in a deterministic way, but people in terms of what it is that they can contribute to a process of getting to a more socially just situation. So, you know, that was, that was, that, that's kind of what, what I think people should think about. Do you think, do you think the time, do you think in terms of priorities, in terms of the most important things that respective communities need to do at a time like this, at a time where there's been mass mobilization, uh, in light of George Floyd's uh, murder, that is not necessarily the right thing, because it is the right thing, but in terms of priorities, in terms of how we know oppressive systems and the echelons of power love pitting communities against other communities, right? As Pharaoh did is in his society, um, is, it, is, is the time now for, let's say, Asians to speak about anti-blackness within their communities, which very much exists? Right, no one's denying that. But at a time where there's anti-blackness amongst Arab societies, right, is the time right? We're not saying that is is the issue right. Of course, it's wrong. It's hard. The, the, the time, yeah. The, the, I think the time is always right. I think the time is always right. I, I I just don't believe that making yourself center stage as somebody that is disavowing uh, these things is necessarily very useful. Like I don't I don't think it's Bad, I just don't think is necessarily very very useful. But in answer to your question, yeah, of course, of mm. course, absolutely, absolutely. Talk about it, bring it out, think about why it is, think about what it's linked to, mm. look at the precursors that exist, 
Look at what the trajectory of it is. Because listen, bro, are we pretending, are we pretending, right, that um, a place that has the history of division, both politically and in a majorly violent way, like India, that then leads to three different states, has merely just uncritically imported some form of US racism towards black people? Of course not, bro. Obviously not. Of course not, bro. Obviously, course obviously not, bro. not. Like I the, can, the I can tell you that as a Bangladeshi, which, of course that's not the case. Exactly. And the extent to which, you know, let's talk about, let's talk about, you know, and I was going to get into it in your question later on about, you know, but let's also then apply it in a global way in terms of this crisis. The mm. remittances, the amount of money that people are sending home is, is, has, has dropped 20% and is, and is basically projected to drop 23%. Now, in that situation, you have to ask yourself, who is it that is going to bear that burden on a global level? If you are in a country like South Sudan, where over 30% of the GDP comes from money that is coming from remittances that are being sent home from family members working elsewhere, if you're in Egypt, where remittances are worth $27 billion a year, or Nigeria, where they're worth something like $24 billion a year, or if you're in somewhere like the Philippines or, or Haiti, where the, the GDP is massively reliant on those things, the burden of this situation, of this economic shutdown, is going to kill people across the world because of that change in remittances being sent. So let's also, in the spirit of internationalism, apply that on a, a global scale. Uh, you know, th this idea also of, of what is and what isn't the Arab world. Do you consider, as part of the Arab world, and I'm not asking you, I'm asking the question to the viewer, the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of labourers that are living in the Gulf and sleeping 20 people to a room. A lot of them having their passports confiscated from them, being in situations where they're working 18, 19 hours a day, where they're building stadiums, where they're doing all these really the Gulf, important yeah. things that are going to economically benefit people that have been told that having a trade union membership is illegal, that going on strike will get you deported. Um, people that actually the British advised the Gulf rulers um, in the 70s that they should look at taking people from parts of India that had no history of collective bargaining for labour in order mm. to have this kind of uneven and unequal relationship with them. Are those people included in our idea of the Arab world? What about, it's just come out the story about Ethiopian uh, domestic um, workers in Lebanon who have a much, much higher chance of falling victim to abuse within the homes that they're working. The, the, the Ethiopian embassy was taking the money that they were meant to be sending home as remittances and keeping it. So huge amount of money was, was going. Are those people included in our concept of what the Arab world is? What about Mauritania? Is that included? Is Malta because they speak a a a, a form a form of quasi Arabic? Are yes. they included 
in the Arab world? Is Somalia, because it's included in the Arab League, part of the Arab world? What about the um, people that speak Sawahili, Swahili, Sawahil, from the Arabic word? Their language is full of Arabic. Are they included in our conception of the Arab world? Yes, I believe in thinking of all of these things. What I don't believe, what I don't believe is that by making it about you and about you as the person who is disavowing backwardsness and is disavowing a culture which you're basically transposing US racism onto is useful to anyone in any way. That's 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 what I'm talking about. Cool. Right. Now, you said something about 10 minutes ago, about 15 minutes ago, where you said you don't think it's wise for African Caribbeans. And even let's say because after African Caribbean, it's Bangladeshis who are the who are most vulnerable to contracting COVID-19 um, for a Bangladeshi. He's twice more likely always. I think it's twice or four times more likely than a white person. To contract COVID-19 And you said you don't think it's wise To be having mass gatherings In the UK Given the way the pandemic Has affected black and minority Ethnic uh, communities Why is that bro? Because people are going to be like Raw, How's Loki saying that? Okay, so The reality is Is that having cro- close I don't, I don't disagree with the idea of the protest happening The protest can happen But what they can do Is there can be and you know i'm i'm not i'm not it's just an idea i'm thinking out loud people could protest in a way that sets up um a lot of distance between each person and they're able to do flash mobs they're able to do stuff in different places it doesn't have to be this dense um close proximity between human beings because what that can unfortunately lead to is Bruv, that's the hard man where, that's where hard. the government I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Of course it is. But the government can blame a second wave on what has already happened. Yeah. They can say, yes, it's disproportionately affecting black people as disproportionately affecting Pakistanis and Bengalis, not because those people are more likely to live in overcrowded housing statistically, not because those people are more likely to work in jobs that endanger them, like a security guard or a, a, a cab driver. Yeah. Statistically, it's because of these protests. Secondly, what they can do is increase surveillance upon these communities on the basis of that. What they can also do is retroactively arrest people for violating social distance stuff. And so I'm just I'm just saying. Not above those are valid points. It would be it would be it would it would be it would be um, it would be wrong for me as somebody now in my thirties, okay, to to invite people to risk themselves in a situation that I'm not directly in that I can I can raise the stakes on that quite easily online I can I could quite easily say everybody should be doing this everybody should be doing this go and burn down this go and do it I'm not going to pay the price for it I'm not I I already I already because of what I've done have my own problems with surveillance and all the rest of it but if I'm inviting young people that still have their lives ahead of them to take a road which can lead to many different places, I'm not going to be with there with them. I'm not going to be there with them in the cells. I'm not going to be there with them when they go back and, and potentially make a, a member of their family ill because they're asymptomatic. No, no, we need, to, we need to think logically and clearly about this. We can't go from a situation where people are asking for more lockdown 
which has the economic repercussions, which we've already spoken about. Yeah. And then say all of a sudden, no, no, it's okay. Everyone get on the street. I agree that issues are already there. Hence, hence the difference in the disproportionate representation of people we've just mentioned in the death toll, right? Those issues are already there that need to be um, challenged and, 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 and mobilized over a long period. Yes, with clear aims. All of that needs to happen. But at this particular time, it's a very, very difficult, difficult moment uh, to be doing so, that. And there was a study that looked into, sorry, bro, there was a study that looked into the 15 major pandemics um, that had hit Europe. They started with the Black Death in um, the 1300s and went all the way to the flu following the Spanish flu following World War One, which killed more people than died in the war. And what they found is that in terms of um, in terms of economic recovery for um, an, an investment which followed those periods, you were looking at serious economic damage that in some cases lasted 30 to 50 years. So what kind of situation are we going to be walking into following this? There's, there's, there's a good direction and there's a bad direction. Cream. And what worries me is that the logic behind the bad mm. direction is already there. I have, Sorry, to, I, I, I have to ask you something, right? And it's something which no doubt... There's going to be people, viewers and listeners who have followed your work since day dot. There's going to be others who may not know much about uh, your work and, and, and things that you rapped about, etc. And in terms of your political punditry. But it seems a consistent thing that you refer, you keep referring back to economics and austerity. Or, or you know, looking at, looking at a kind of a web of things from that perspective. Why is that, Akhi? Because it's, it's, it, it, it dominates so many things about our lives. Um, if we look at, for instance, the ostensibly following the bailout of the banks mm. in uh, 2010, you had a situation where uh, Royal Bank of Scotland is supposedly uh, nationalised and owned by the British public, right? But the logic behind it, pardon me, is still the same logic that would operate towards a private company. It's still beholden to its shareholders more than in any way it is beholden to public ownership. And so the point is, is that you can actually, there's a great book called um, The Equality Effect by Professor Danny Dawling from Oxford, where he looks at the disparity between the richest and the poorest in society. Okay, now... Uh, Prior to um, World War One, you had a situation where the top one percent of the population took twenty percent of the national income. Okay, now what happened was, following World War One, you would have to have a a state which would have more obligations because it became a war economy, more obligations towards the population. So obviously, uh, you know, 1914 to 1918, Britain went from occupying uh, 12,700,000 miles of the globe to occupying 14, um, uh, 14 million miles of the globe. Uh, yeah, 14 million miles of the globe. So, yeah, so what, so what happened, by the way, was... Britain was able to afford a more equitable uh, division 
of its national income amongst the population. And what you steadily move towards, you steadily move towards a situation in the early 70s where you had the top 1% of the society um, taking 6% of national income and 4% after tax. Okay, now at that point, when you have the top 1% taking a smaller portion of the national income, the levels of social ills are lower, levels of depression are lower, people's health is better. Um, Generally, people are happier within the society. However, when you move to the position we're at now, where the top 1% of the society takes 17% of national income, okay, What that means is that we, in terms of disparity, not in terms of quality of life, let's be clear, quality of life has risen substantially from pre-World War I uh, uh, situation. However, the, the, the disparity between the richest and the poorest means that you will have greater unhappiness, um, you actually have rising infant mortality, um, you, and that was Theresa May's government, you had that. You had um, uh, rising, rising general, um, the, the life expectancy getting lower. And all of that is because this disparity is smaller and, and, and you have a, a society more defined by scarcity, more defined by antagonism between people in different positions socially. And so the reason why I focus on economics to answer your question is that it is that that dominates the, the, the stratification of society. And if you want a more socially just society, then you can have a, a society which economically is arranged slightly differently. Cool. So on the issue of the way BAME communities have been affected by the COVID-19 in the UK, right? And, yeah. and we've already seen that um, African Caribbeans are being disproportionately stopped uh, and find from these new COVID-19 exactly. laws We see that there was no hoo-ha about Victory Day street celebrations Or people going to the beaches Who were predominantly white folk You know, enjoying their bank holiday beach breaks But there's been a, a, a focus on communities and areas in the UK Which is predominantly um, ethnic minority communities We see that there's been a huge uh, advertising campaign about telling Muslims to stay at home for Eid and stuff like this, and, but the same yeah. the same thing wasn't there for Victory Day celebrations. We also know there's been introduction of new laws, um, laws which clearly are, are very draconian in their nature. You you briefly mentioned to it in terms of uh, trace and testing, as well as the fact that you know there's going to be apps now looking to uh, follow people's movements. How does this all fit into the existing security apparatus that we already have in the UK? Um, perhaps somewhat different to the US But nevertheless at its basis The same in the way it targets Muslims, African Caribbeans uh, From a position of Distrust and surveillance Well I think um, All of that is definitely Going to intensify It gives it the um, the Justification to intensify It further in the name of public health I think if you look at Henry Jackson's society as quite a good, you know, because Prevent was something that was lobbied for by uh, Student Rights, which was the organisation which was... Um, a front for Henry Jackson uh, Society. Say that again, brother? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the student Rights was basically a front for the HJS, wasn't it? Ex- exactly. And the, uh, the, the Centre for Social Cohesion. Yeah. So that these organisations are ahead of the curve. What they, they exist with that symbiotic relationship where they create the 
stories and they feed them to the media who reproduce them uncritically. Absolutely. And then they use those stories to send them to politicians Absolutely. and then say, oh, well, yep. we're reacting to public demand. Yeah. Okay. Now, if you look at where Henry Jackson society are going with it and where others who are linked to a Trump-ish agenda, it's linked to escalating things with China. Now, what that will undoubtedly lead to is increased surveillance of Chinese people here, but also increased attacks on the streets of Chinese people here too. So I think um, Islamophobia as the dominant racism in our society is here to stay for a while, but I think things are going to take interesting uh, different turns. And it's important to be conscious of those uh, things. I want to ask you something. Since since you mentioned some, since you mentioned the way that Henry Jackson society of late has been going after China and producing that kind of war type rhetoric that they have previously done, because these guys survive off war. Yeah, I've said it straight. I said to one of their people uh, on the BBC live show, I said, look, without war, you'd be out of a job. Quite frankly, it was a Hindu- fantastic, yeah. fantastic, fantastic. It, it, it was a Hadouken that had to get dropped. I looked at her squarely in the eyes. Forgot her name, Emily. Su- Emily something, but she's gone because it all move around this kind of circuit of think tanks, right? And, she, yeah, and, yeah, and I exactly. said, and I said, look, without war, you would not have a job, and that's the truth of it. So since now they, yeah. since they, since they're drumming, they're they they drumming the beats of war now, yeah, against the mm. Chinese. Where does that put Muslims? Who are seeing what China is doing to the Uyghurs? The Uyghurs. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. What what position? What what awkward position does that put Muslims in, in terms of remaining firm and persistent on and, and consistent on, on the issue of adil and justice, where you know, yeah. okay, fine, we want China. We know what China is doing to our brothers and sisters up in Xinjiang and East Turkestan, but at the same time, we know that they're going to come after Chinese people here unfairly. What would your advice be to the Muslim community in terms of if they find themselves? In that situation, I, th- I think it's possible to be critical of both things at the same time. I, d- I don't think it has to be, you know, as somebody such as yourself, with the experience that you have, you're not about to cheerlead for uh, a new projection of mainly the US, but Britain would go along with it, uh, military power. But at the same time, it's about being critical about the sources we're getting information from. It's about being aware of um, of people like the Henry Jackson Society are so amazing because they are <laughs> taken every single time. Every single time they speak anywhere in the news, it's as if they're experts. Yeah, yeah. Is this the experts? Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. They have not one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's crazy because they literally none of them speak Arabic, um, and they're all experts. None of bro. them have studied. They're all experts, stuff. bro. And they're all experts, which is amazing. You know, something that people have given forty to fifty years of their life studying. These guys come in and <laughs> and just think they're. But but that's what it is. Exactly as you said, it's an attachment to the war industry, and so I think yeah, it's about both things are possible. You know, you don't have to um, view the world in a very simplistic black or white way. You know, you don't have to say it's about good and evil because it's not. It's about states have political interests. The one China policy is established. It, it means that people that have 
any type of independent or national aspirations around it suffer and are subject to i mean seriously you know this is the other thing is even looking at the covid-19 thing i personally would not want to live in you know the death toll in a lot of other places was was a lot lower but in terms of the monitoring and the state surveillance that was necessary in order to do that i wouldn't be happy with giving the state that level of of power so i think it's about thinking critically about those things bro but yeah it will put people in a difficult uh, situation as often these things do man bring as it often these things bring do. in bring in the podcast to a, to to a close and, and and concluding with a topic which i know is very dear to your heart dear to my heart and dear to the hearts of i would say a billion and a half Muslims around the world And that's the issue of Palestine Right Now in 2019 Last February you spoke at Oxford And you said Basically that the Arab world Hasn't given up on Palestine Or hasn't failed Palestine Do you, do you know the Oxford talk that I'm talking about? Yes Yeah. Yes. Now, mm-hmm. now do you make a distinction Between regimes and rulers And the Awam Is that essentially is that, is that a so, distinction that you make? So what I would say is that, number one, if we look at the argument that there is something biologically in common between all Arabs, we would see that no geneticist would support this idea. You have the first mentioning of people that seem to be Arabs um, by uh, Shalom al-Nasr, who was uh, an Assyrian king in the 800s BC. Um, where he's talking about this group of people that he refers to as Araba. You had Babylonian references to this group of people, Persian references to this group of people, Greek records also show that this group of people were around. Um, but the Romans uh, generally referred, referred to them as Saracens. And so what that meant is that when uh, the British started coming into contact with these people, it was only... Um, in the 18th century when they changed from referring to them as Saracens to referring to them as Arabs. What does bond people together is a, a shared linguistic origin, which it depends. You know, people say that Arabic in many ways um, inherited a lot of, um, a lot of its, its, uh, its, its habits in terms of communication from Ugaritic, um, uh, from Phoenicians, from other civilizations that came before it. Um, what ties all of those people together? Now, I don't think actually that people should feel necessarily um, that Arabs should be more expected to be supportive of the Palestinians because of biology, but they are because of culture, because of language, because of um, religious significance of Al-Aqsa because of um, history. And so that puts us in a situation where you have populations that, you know, even if you were to look at, say, um, Saudi official records, they would say that 190 Saudi soldiers died in 1948, 13 died in 1967 and 36 died in 1973. Their official discourse would be that they are not betraying the cause by supporting what Trump is pushing forward as the the sort of Arab initiative and tacit support 
for the annexation of the rest of Palestine. You know, 8,000 Bengalis um, volunteered to fight for the PLO in the 70s. So you have a situation where people from all over the world support the Palestinians and want to help them in their situation. They see that they are muhasarin, uh, they are besieged, they are, um, they are driven to different corners of the world where they have less rights than the people in the states in which they live. You know, the fact is, is in Lebanon, you have four generations of Palestinians who face horrific um, uh, discrimination within Lebanese society. That doesn't mean, you know, there's a saying, ta'mim yaqtil tahlil for, for to 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 generalize you're just killing the ability to analyze so we can't say across the board that all arabs stand with palestinians to be honest the argument that i made in that debate was seeing what they were attempting to do because the implication in their premise was that they arabs had failed palestinians by not um subjugating themselves before Israel by okay. not kneeling to what Israel wants them to okay. do. So my argument, my argument, mm. sorry, bro, sorry, go ahead. No, go no, no, go on, go on, Khalas, finish, finish your point. So my argument is that the governments that have been dealing with the Israelis for all of these years are Arabic-speaking representatives of the 0.1%. They don't represent the feelings of their populations. People naturally feel that they should uh, defend Palestinians. So you are making course, a distinction. Gen- so you well, are making you are making we, a distinction between the, I am the rulers am, yeah, in the region that are one. You are. That's correct. Yes, okay. that was that is correct. But 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 the the distinction is important because what they're attempting to do is use this discourse and also this this you know this idea of the Arab world is not necessarily something that I completely um, that I completely go along with. But you know the polls showed that ninety one percent of uh, people in Arabic-speaking countries said that Israel is the greatest threat to their security. Yep. Why do they have that? They have that because Israel has a well-established assassination program, which yep. has visited countries all over the world, including no. Europe. Yep. Um, it, it, they say it because Israel has invaded every single country it borders with because it refuses to define its own borders. It's bombed Sudan, it's bombed uh, Syria, it's bombed Iraq within the uh, last last five years or so so we are talking about a situation where the elites of these countries are being forced to accept an orthodoxy which is servility towards israeli interests and and those elites will benefit from it in terms of exchange of information in terms of military technology in terms of um, different business interests those elites would benefit from such arrangements and and most of the countries around it have tacit agreements with the israelis and have since 1948 since 1967 they have had to have some form of negotiation with um the israelis but one of the things that i took that i always i always take umbrage with is this idea that palestinian armed resistance is across the board rejected by the whole international community It is if you take what the US government, which ostensibly represents 328 million people, and the UK government, which represents 66 million people, what they say, uh, Palestinian armed resistance 
despite the fact the UN resolutions assert that it is legal in international law, say that this is completely, it, it's out of bounds. It's not a question. You don't have the option of an armed um, deterrent towards what the Israelis do. But it's not like uh, Turkey, which their government supposedly represents 79 million people. It's not like they define these same groups as terrorist organization. You know, the Russian government, which supposedly represents 145 million people, they don't define these organizations as terrorist um, organizations. Venezuela, 31 million people. Um, you know, Pakistan, 197 million people. Uh, Switzerland, which represents almost 9 million people. In terms of the governments that define Palestinian resistance as terrorism, they are representing far less people than the governments that take those organisations as serious political uh, groups. So I think that four countries that speak the same language as the Palestinians are and are in constant cross-cultural exchanges with them to be in a rush to define those groups as terrorist organisations, to imprison those groups and, and to try and do everything. You know, you had the Deputy Chief of, Chief of Police in Dubai um, yesterday or the day before, a few days ago, say there needs to be an Arab invasion of Qatar and there needs to be a, a peace agreement between Qatar and Israel. Madness. Madness, precisely madness. madness. Because what is happening is people are seeing narrow self-interests of the business uh, and the political elites. And, and, and trying to dictate what is public po policy. You know, people in 1948 were literally pushing their governments to send them and to go and fight. So the, the, the reality is, is, as the old adage goes, they say um, the, the old will die and the children will forget. You know, it is our job in an era of prevent where children are being questioned by police for wearing Palestine badges in British schools. Yeah. The place where the Balfour Declaration was, you know, it was Chaim Wiseman, actually, who was professor at Manchester University, who was able to persuade for three years he spent pers persuading the British government to issue the Balfour Declaration. And let's not forget that, the, you know, the number one enemy of the publishing of the Balfour Declaration was Edwin Montague, who was Jewish himself in Britain. Um, you know, let's not forget figures like Nathan Birnbaum. You know, this guy was... The, credited with coining the phrase Zionism and was a Zionist and later became an anti-Zionist. Let's assert our rights that by supporting Palestinian rights, we are support, supporting the rights of all people, but also that Zionism in and of itself, in and of itself, and this was one of Edwin Montague's criticisms of it, he said, by doing this, not only will it necessitate the displacement of the indigenous population, he said it will make Jews in other countries around the world unsafe because all of a sudden those countries they're in will no longer be their countries. So there's all, to, you know, there's all types of arguments that have to be made. But as I said, the, the, the adage goes that the, the, the old will die and the children will forget. We have to make sure the children remember and that the children assert the rights of the Palestinian people where they are and are eager to learn about it as well and see it as relevant to them. Now, of course, you you alluded to quite clearly um, that, you know, you don't necessarily subscribe to the notion of the Arab world per se in the way it's commonly spoken about. And you you, you refer to, uh, you know, what's actually meant by the Arab people and, and, and so forth. But I'm going to be I'm going to be frank with you, Kareem, brother. Yeah? The reason mm -hmm. why the reason why an Indonesian or a Malaysian or a Bengali 
or someone in Shishan or in, in, in Dagestan or someone as south as Tanzania cares about Palestine is because it's the, it's the third holiest site in Islam because of Masjid al-Aqsa. Of course. Yeah? Yeah. So, so it's, I, mean, I mean, so I totally reject and have consistently rejected that the issue of Palestine is an Arab cause. I'm not about that. Yeah? Naturally, you will, naturally people will gravitate towards that argument because of the neighbouring countries and the neighbouring the neighboring lands and governments. I get that. In the same way that when you talk about Kashmir, it's very, you know, it's, it's easy to, you straight away refer to Pakistan, right? Or if you look at the Rohingya situation, straight away you refer to Bangladesh, right? And, and so forth. But the point here is, many, many, and I'm talking in the hundreds of millions of Muslims, non-Arab Muslims, fear for Philistine because of Al-Aqsa, right? Yeah. So given that, bro, right, there's many Muslims, whether they'll sit, go on record or publicly say it or not, they'll say, look, we can't even recognize a hand span of this country as legitimate, i.e. Israel. We can't. Mm. We can't recognize a hand span of giving legitimacy to this state, to this illegal entity. So what would your views then be with regards to when we talk about the two-state solution, whether it be the 48 borders, which is not even on the table, it's really the 67 borders, or 73 borders, wouldn't recognizing or working towards a two-state solution essentially give legitimacy to the Israeli entity? Yeah, 100%. There is no two-state solution. It was a subterfuge for more ethnic cleansing, and it was an example of that optimistic cruelty mm. of the Palestinian corrupt, um, compromised elite. Uh, definitely the foundation of Israel was a necessity of it was the demographic balance and changing the demographic balance. You know, there were different strands within Zionism. There was spiritual Zionism that uh, somebody called Martin Buber advocated for, but that movement, which was non-state based, and it was the idea that, that died out people, and that didn't get much traction. Well, right? It only had a few hundred. It only had a few hundred people at, yeah. at its height. Um, you had... Uh, Leo Pinsker, who wrote the auto-emancipation pamphlet, which basically argued that Jewish people were... Because the nation-state is, is, is a modern concept, and uh, you had people that in, had spent a lot of time, like Pinsker, like Herzl, mm. had spent a lot of time trying to assimilate within the societies they came from, and found it very very difficult you know they both were quite successful in those societies but things happened which led them to see their own positions as more precarious than they would like and they looked at the modern state and thought if if jewish people were able to have that then it would offer you know and there's a reading of theodore herzl and uh, leo pinsker which says that they were pinned to quite themselves anti-jewish feelings and these are the figureheads of, of, of Zionism, mm. you know, they talked about Jewish people in, in human ways and the ways in which Jewish people could be humanised, according to these guys, a certain reading of their work, um, attest that statehood is what would deliver them to full humanhood. Yep. Um, but they were also, Leo Pinsky himself was not Palestine-centric in his Zionism. So 
it was a state. It could have been, you know, let's not forget that the British government at one point, not long before Theodore Herzl died, offered... Um, Uganda? You know, there was talk of Argentina, there was talk of Uganda. Mm. Um, and, and Herzl initially accepted Uganda, actually, but then was opposed massively in the World Zionist Congress and then died not long after it in 1905. So what, if you read the Judenstadt by uh, Theodore Herzl, he said, we must spirit the penniless population across the border. And that amounts to the practice of ethnic cleansing. Um, Zionist thinkers in the Yeshuv period, which is the way it's referred to, which itself means settlement. And this was actually one of the reasons why I said that um, Sultan Abdul Hamid II was naive, was because of his meetings with Theodore Herzl, which... But he's celebrated, Karim, he's celebrated for rejecting many of the proposals made to him by Herzl. But um, the the point that I'm going to finish, and I, and I agree that Herzl made a mistake by revealing his hand by going to the Uthmanian and stating that this was the intention because what it potentially meant is that Jewish settlement that had already been taking place from the eighteen um, uh, the 1880s would be something that would be impeded by what he did and while it is correct that he was he had four meetings okay now in those four meetings, a conversation continued about the possibility of Theodore Herzl being able to pull strings to, uh, to alleviate and forgive some of Ottoman, the Ottoman debt. Yeah. But, but my, my point is, is that during that process, the build-up of settlements was taking place. And yes, there are, and, it, and it's true, there are those that say... Because of people uh, trying, Fellahim particularly, trying to avoid conscription, they allowed Palestinian urbanites to have land ownership. And in some place, some some cases, Lebanese people to have land ownership of uh, swaths of Palestine. And there were instances of land being sold by landowners who were in cities of land that was in the countryside. Um, But what there also was, was, you know, as I'm sure you know, uh, Jewish people enjoyed far greater rights in uh, Ottoman uh, Palestine than in many other parts of Europe at that period. That had been the case Um, for centuries, bro. Yeah, so, so the point was, is that you had, um, the settlement was able to intensify during that period. So it's for that reason that I would, um, I would, I would say uh, naive, but many people were naive. You know, it's easy to view things in a teleological way. It's easy to view things in an inevitable way, that this was always going to happen. But the reality is, is that when things are happening, we have no idea of where things will be politically in 50 years or 40 years, you know, so so you can't necessarily be too condemnatory about decisions that were made that now in retrospect appear to have been pretty terrible um, decisions. But um, I'm not sure why I went down this, <laughs> why I went down Dang. this route. But um, but in, in terms of the development of, of the Zionist movement, 
there was consensus among both sides of it as it developed from the Jabotinsky side and the Ben-Gurion side. The Ben-Gurion side, which he was also trained in the British Army, Jabotinsky was trained in the British Army. Um, one side of it believed they would get their state off the back of British tanks, and the other side believed in confrontation with the British. One side of it believed, and you know, and this was an unfortunate thing about the political climate in this country. It didn't allow us to have a real discussion and interrogation of the very real political decisions that were made by elements within the Zionist movement vis-a-vis um, uh, Germany in the, in, in the 30s, particularly. Um, and even as late as the f- uh, 41, you know, Stern Gang sent a letter to uh, the Nazi government saying they would enter the war on the side of the Nazis. You know, this is the Stern Gang. This is a, a, a terrorist group that was killing British soldiers and was uh, killing Palestinians also. So the thing is, is there was, despite these differences between the two sides, consensus that the Palestinians were the indigenous uh, people. And in terms of, and in terms of Al-Aqsa, one way in which I think we uh, should not forget, because while we should be aware of limitations that exist, we should also not be afraid to uh, big up and emphasize victories that were had. You know, there would be metal detectors on Al-Aqsa right now if it was not for the civil disobedience which blocked the Israelis from being able to do that. So while the digging is going on underneath it, while settler groups are being funded by the Israeli government and regularly going in and their passage is being facilitated by Israeli soldiers, the resistance is always there. Do you, you know, the resistance just just to conclude, right, and this is a concluding yeah. concluding note, and I, and I do want your brief notes on this. Do you think do you feel that it's a fair and just mindset to have amongst Muslims, irrelevant of race, irrelevant of nationality, that they simply will not accept any type of Zionist entity? Yeah, completely. Yani- completely, bro. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good. 100%. Alhamdulillah. 100%. I, 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 subscribe, to, I subscribe to the same position. Mm. I subscribe to the same position. And... The reality is, is that people are being bullied quite easily into a position where they say, you know, if Benny Morris, right, um, can say that displacement and ethnic cleansing was necessary for the foundation of Israel, then why can we not say that Zionism is racism in that way? If, if from the own, from the own advocates of from the advocates of the cause make clear. Jabotinsky, who has more streets in Israel, quote-unquote, the state of Israel, named after him than any other human being, said very clearly, what we are doing can only exist against the clenched teeth of the indigenous people of this place. So, you know, it's, uh, we are not alone. Okay. My brother, enough love for this, man. It's been a good conversation, Akhi, man. Wallahi, I've... <laughs> Thanks, bro. I, I, was, I was very long-winded. Nah, 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 nah. You need... Everyone knows that Loki's long-winded and it's a beneficial long-windedness, man. <laughs> oh, that was deep. Kareem, enough love for that, Thanks, my brother. It was, a, it, was an nah, honor, all, it, it was an honor having you on, bruv. Nah, it's an honor to be on, bro. Thank you nah, for nah. having me, man. And we'll, nah. we'll talk more, bro. Nah, nah, most definitely. Look after yourself, yeah? brother, and keep us in your prayers, man. 
You too, my bro. Okay. My salam and take care. Wa alaikum salam. Brothers and sisters, um, I hope you enjoyed that very in-depth uh, podcast. Um, please subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. Um, there's a lot to take in, a lot to think about. And um, I guess the 13-month wait to have Loki on uh, was worth the wait. Um, I know many of you were waiting uh, for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you benefit from it. And most importantly, I hope you reflect upon many of the issues that we discussed. For those of you in North America, please subscribe to the Mad Mumlux channel and go onto their podcast platforms to listen to this podcast. Everyone else, subscribe to the Five Players YouTube channel. Click that bell notification. Leave a comment. Like the video. Share the video. And until next time, Assalamu Alaikum wa Rahmatullahi wa Barakatuh. Blood Burma's podcast of Five Pillars of Mad Monarchs production.